One of the more noticeable features about the Gospel of John is the attention it gives to our everyday flesh-and-bone experience as human beings. John gives us intimate portraits of Jesus that draw on everyday life. Just think, a dinner guest at a wedding, an accusation of adultery, encountering the desperately ill, drawing water from a well, the death of a friend. Think also of the metaphors that Jesus uses in John to describe himself or explain himself to his friends. I am the bread of life, living water, the light of the world, the good shepherd, and the true vine. Of course, it's John's gospel that begins with this startling phrase, the word became flesh and lived for a while among us. God comes to us in the midst of our everyday lives, in the world that he has created for us. One of the more arresting pictures of Jesus that John gives us is to be found in the passage before us tonight, the washing of his disciples' feet. It's an unwarranted act of humility, an act of tenderness and intimacy. It's an act that makes us uncomfortable, even as observers 2,000 years removed from the scene. It's certainly an act that made people in the room uncomfortable, as we see in Peter's reaction. There were undoubtedly some in John's first audience who would have found this emphasis on God's immersion in our flesh-and-bone existence discomforting. There were those both in the church and outside of the church who found the physical world to be anathema to their spiritual lives. The world was an evil place. The pleasures of life were spiritually corrupting. The human body was a prison for the soul. So John's telling of the gospel in this way cuts across this sentiment. It affirms life lived in the body as a thing that God is pleased to enter into. Now, most of us probably do not have that problem. The problem for a modern audience is that we, are invest, we have invested almost everything in the notion that the fleshiness of our existence is the supreme good in life. As moderns, we are inclined to believe that what we can see and hear and touch is all there is to life. And if that's so, then we ought to be about the business of immersing ourselves to, in it to the fullest extent possible, with as few restraints as respectability requires of us. So we live our lives with the intent of exhausting our bodies with physical pleasure. We look at the natural world as a giant grab bag, something to be exploited and used up, with little consideration for the long-term consequences either to God's creation or to the generations that will follow us. It's small wonder, then, that the body and possessions have become our primary idols. So this passage has a Lenten word for us. Perhaps part of our own discomfort with the scene comes from how deeply we and our culture have corrupted all forms of intimacy. Jesus' simple act presents us with a picture of bodily existence, existence that possesses dignity and integrity, a way of relating to one another that is within the bounds of our created purpose a way of living in the world that doesn't depend on exploitation. Our modern idols are symptomatic of a much deeper human problem, however, namely our infatuation with power. And it's precisely this disease of the heart that Jesus confronts us with in this passage. Look carefully at the scene. Jesus gets up to wash his disciples' feet during the meal. We're struck by the incongruity of this act on several levels. First, the timing of it. Normally, foot washing would be done as guests enter into the house before they gathered for the meal. Something's off about that. Something's wrong with the timing. 
What Jesus does is also socially inappropriate. Foot washing was the work of servants or slaves, not for those of higher stations, certainly not the work of guests at a meal. Finally, Jesus' actions create a sense of moral discomfort. A teacher doesn't wash the feet of his disciple. The greater does not serve the lesser. That was a part of the culture in which Jesus and his disciples lived. So Jesus subverts their expectations of the evening and deliberately provokes their anxiety. Now, perhaps this was a response to the disciples bickering that evening. The other Gospels tell us uh, that they had been arguing among themselves about who was going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. John doesn't mention this event, uh, but he replaces the verbal rebuke that Jesus gives in the other Gospels with an overt act of public self-humiliation. Peter gets this. He understands the incongruity of what Jesus is doing. We see his discomfort at the prospect of Jesus washing his feet. Lord, you shall never wash my feet. I like Peter. Maybe you do too. Peter was one of those uh, people who basically threw all caution to the wind. When he wanted to do something, he was all in. It was never half measure with Peter. And it's the reckless nature of his faith that I find endearing and even exemplary. Whatever Jesus was doing, wherever Jesus was going, Peter was all in even if it made him look like a fool in the process. Now, I imagine Peter was the kind of kid who was yelling, me, me, pick me, pick me, anytime somebody asked for a volunteer for something. I suspect that when Peter was in high school, you could probably dare him to do almost anything, and he would do it. It's what got him walking on the water when everyone else was cowering in the boat. Peter is the one who's bold enough to first confess that Jesus is the Messiah when everybody else is sort of guessing at lesser figures like Elijah. Peter is the one who at least had the courage to say that he was willing to die alongside Jesus. Of course, his recklessness often came back to bite him. I also imagine that Peter was a 10-year-old kid who didn't mind giving his parents a piece of his mind. Some of you may know someone like that. His faith almost sinks him to the bottom of the sea. Jesus has to rebuke him after his confession so severely that, in effect, he curses Peter. And of course, Peter has to endure what may be the most painful question ever asked of another human being. Peter, do you love me? Not once, but three times. We see both elements of Peter's personality in John 13. When Jesus comes to wash his feet, Peter tries to straighten him out. We'd expect that from Peter. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? No, Lord, you will never wash my feet. Peter knows that the picture is all wrong. Something is amiss. He knows that he is in every way unworthy of Jesus' act of hospitality. However, once Peter learns what's at stake, unless I wash you, you have no part with me, then he's all in. Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Now, it's hard not to see this as a somewhat lighthearted moment. Peter's request is absurd. He wants a head-to-toe sponge bath in the middle of dinner. It would surprise me if his request didn't elicit some laughter in the room, perhaps even from Jesus himself. We observe this night as a somber one, and with good reason, because we look at it, we look back at it through the lens of Good Friday. But remember uh, that the disciples began this evening as a celebration. They're celebrating Passover, the deliverance of God's people from the Egyptians. They have just witnessed Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And they have spent at least a portion of the evening 
throwing elbows at each other, vying to see who's going to be Jesus' right-hand man. So there's a kind of expectant celebratory mood in the room. They seem to have no inkling as to what is about to befall them. So when Jesus moves to wash their feet, they're in the middle of a party. I think there's laughter here. I think Jesus is telling a kind of nervous joke. Some commentaries see the washing of the disciples' feet as a symbolic reference to the cleansing effect of the atonement, or perhaps even an allusion to baptism. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And perhaps in an indirect way it is. But in this instance, Jesus reveals explicitly what he means. Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Truly, no servant is greater than his master. Jesus draws attention to the incongruity of the situation. The Messiah, the King of Israel, has come to serve his subjects and in the most humbling manner possible. The paradigm of the kingdom of God is set. It's love, not power, that defines who we are. Jesus' words cut right to the heart of the disciples' religious fantasy. Their fantasy was a God of power, who glories in human power and in the subjugation of others as a sign of human worth. The disciples' vision of the kingdom of God really isn't any, any different from, what, from the vision of the, a kingdom that the Romans had, that the Romans that they despised. They just think they're being backed by a bigger God. Jesus' words also cut across our fantasy of power as well. Now, maybe that's a religious fantasy, a fantasy that God will favor us with his blessings and smooth our path in life. Maybe it's a personal fantasy that our achievements and our acquisitions mark our lives as a success in God's eyes. In this simple, singular act, Jesus frees us from that slavery to the delusion of power. So two things are required of us in order to receive the grace of this act. We have to let Jesus wash our feet. That is, we have to allow God to come close to us, as close as someone who would bathe our feet. That's very close and very personal. Now, this goes against our natural instincts, certainly mine. God serving us. But when we do so, we open our hearts to God's heart. We put aside the pride and the shame that form a wall between us and God's presence. Then we turn to wash the feet of those around us. We seek to serve others, not out of some sense of obligation to God, not out of some desire to gain merit with God, but because in seeking out others in this way, we make the kingdom of God present in our flesh and bone existence. We make it believable. Offering grace to those who have no expectation of it, alleviating the suffering of those who have no hope. We serve others because it is the way of the kingdom, the way that gives life. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them.